Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. I've been looking forward for some time to today's, today, today's conversation with our guest, Visiting Assistant Professor of Political Science, Savannah Johnston. Professor Johnston is a political theorist specializing in American conservative thought. The ideas that informed the remarkable rise of the American conservative movement in the last decades of the 20th century. I am fascinated and always have been by American conservatism. During the 1950s, in the wake of the New Deal and World War II, conservatism in America seemed a spent political force. This was the era of Lionel Trilling's Liberal Imagination, a book in which he claimed that, quote, it is a plain fact that nowadays there is no conservative or reactionary ideas in general circulation, unquote. Yet, at this very moment, William F. Buckley founded a little periodical, National Review, that proved a vehicle for reviving conservative ideas and providing the intellectual foundation for a revived conservative movement. In less than 10 years, a committed conservative, Barry Goldwater, won the Republican nomination for president. Although Goldwater lost overwhelmingly to Lyndon Johnson in the 1964 presidential election, his defeat only served to mobilize millions of conservative activists on behalf of the conservative cause. The election of Republican conservative Ronald Reagan to the presidency in 1980 certified that American conservatives were no longer on the margins of American life, but at its center. While political scientists have identified in many factors in the revival of American conservatism, the ideas and policy proposals emanating from conservative intellectuals at National Review and other conservative publications played an important role. Yet, as our guest today has explored in her scholarship, American conservative thought since the 1950s has contained a tension between two contrasting strands of conservative thinking. First, traditional conservatism that traces its roots to the theories of the 18th century political thinker Edmund Burke. And second, classical liberalism rooted in the outlook of another 18th century theorist, Adam Smith. In our conversation today, Professor Johnston and I will discuss this tension, how the so-called, quote, fusion, unquote, movement held these strands together, but that now fusion may not be able to paper over this tension. Before we begin our conversation, let me provide some more background on our guest, Savannah Johnston. Guest. Savannah Johnston hails from Utah where she earned her undergraduate degree at Brigham Young University in 2015. She went on to graduate study in political science at Claremont, Young, Claremont Graduate University, where she earned her PhD in 2020. Upon completing her degree, she was named to the prestigious American Political Science Association Congressional Fellowship Program and served in the office of Rhode Island Senator Jack Reed during the 2020-2021 academic year. So you see that Professor Johnston, though from Utah, Utah, has a strong Rhode Island connection. Professor Johnston has presented numerous papers on political theory and recently published The Rise of Illiber Illiberal Conservatism, Immigration and Nationhood at National Review in the journal American Political Thought. We have been delighted to have Savannah as a member of the PC political science faculty this year. And for what my colleagues tell me, she has proven to be an inspiring teacher of our students and an amiable colleague. Professor Savannah Johnston, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, uh, Professor Johnston, let's, let's begin back in the 1950s, if we could. Could you give us a little picture of what conservatism was? Uh, both politically and intellectually at the time, uh, to what extent do you think Lionel Trilling was correct in his assessment of the state of conservatism at that time? I actually like the way he frames it. Politically, conservatism is dead. There's no unified conservative 
movement. Uh, when I think of, of the different policies advocated by both Republicans and Democrats during this time, uh, neither would be recognizable, I guess the Republican side wouldn't be recognizable to conservatives today as, as being conservative as we understand it. Uh, both had fully bought in and in some degree to the New Deal. Uh, so it, it's not, it doesn't have any force as a political movement. It's, it's very much on the, on the outskirts. Intellectually though, uh, I th I'm not sure it's accurate to say that it was dead so much as, as uh, in hibernation. Uh, it, but it's true, it did come, come back to life in the mid-1950s. So no, it doesn't have any widespread national audience in the early 1950s. Yeah, and uh, the National Re Review that Buckley started in 1955 uh, was very important to this revival of conservative thinking. Yeah, how did the National Review come about? Uh, what led, maybe you can say something about who William Buckley is and, and exactly why he founded the Review and, and what difference that made for the conservative intellectuals at the time. Yes, the uh, National Review, as you said, starts in 1955, and it's started by a coalition of conservative intellectuals. Um, you have uh, Bill Buckley, you have Frank Meyer, who I think is probably the most significant out of all of them, even more so than, than Buckley. You have uh, Bozel, uh, you have uh, Whitaker Chambers, so he's only there for the first couple of years. Uh, you have uh, the influence of, of uh, Wilmore uh, Kendall, uh, and then of course, James Burnham, who, who start this magazine. And what I think is interesting about these characters is actually their backgrounds. It tells you about where this comes from. There's two unifying forces in this background. One is that many were former, anti, uh, were former communists. This is, this is really interesting. Frank Meyer is a committed uh, communist. Um, James Burnham is a Trotskyite. Uh, this, this is great stuff. Whitaker Chambers. Right. So they're they're not only communists; they're they're communists on different factions, yes, yes. right? Stalinist versus Trotskyite. Yes, yes, they are, and they're operatives as well. These aren't just like intellectuals; they're out there operating and organizing uh, as early as the 1920s for some of these, which is, I think, quite something. Uh, so they all, not all of them, but a good number of them, probably the majority, have a uh, have this connection to communism and then uh, have these kind of dramatic exits from, from Communist Party activity and conversions to what we would call conservatism today. But first, those, those, uh, those conversions tended to be towards Christianity first. And this is the second interesting connection and a PC connection, mm -hmm. Catholics. All but Whitaker yeah. Chambers have some connection to Catholicism. Either they are Catholics at the beginning, fall away and come back, uh, or they, uh, they convert to Catholicism. And of course, Whitaker Chambers' dramatic conversion to Christianity is, is kind of the, the death knell of his, of his communism, communist sympathies. So I think those two things are really, really interesting to understand the National Review. Right. And William F. F. Buckley, of course, was a Catholic. Oh yes, uh, and and that certainly informed his conservatism. Mm -hmm. uh, Brett Bozell was a Catholic as well. Uh, had he been a former communist? Bozell? No, uh, no, no, he wasn't. But he was a convert to Catholicism. Uh, okay, and and kind of a, I think as many converts are to any religion, kind of a, a radical uh, convert, uh, very zealous. In fact, he later right. moves to Spain and becomes something of a sympathizer for the Franco regime because right. it's more, I don't know, Catholic or something. Right, right. And authoritarian, which right. later on he becomes more author authoritarian. Okay. Uh, Buckley himself, however, was a cradle Catholic uh, in a, from a big Catholic family in Connecticut, uh, though his... Uh, family fortune derived from Texas, didn't it? Uh, I, I, I don't know his economic yeah, I, background. I'm not sure about that myself. So, yeah. But anyway, he was, a, he was kind of an elite uh, Yale graduate, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. There are, there's a, a deep elitism here. One thing I, I also find fascinating is Russell Kirk. You can kind of uh, laugh at him a little bit for how desperately he wants to be 
like a British uh, aristocrat, right? He speaks in that manner and, and, uh, and all of this. So they all kind of have that deep connection. Well, and Buckley himself had that kind of, he had kind of a Anglo accent himself. Right. Uh, and, and a kind of demeanor. Uh, some of our listeners may not know that for many years, uh, Buckley had one of the most popular shows on uh, public television, right. uh, Firing Line. Uh, and he would sit in a chair and, and interview very often people from the left. Mm. Uh, his favorite guests were uh, people from, uh, from the left, uh, like uh, John Kenneth Galbraith that was on frequently and, uh, and other that, that he uses foils. Uh, but he had that kind of demeanor way of speaking that like from a English public school. Right. Right. But, but back to the, the point of the founding of national review, why I bring up these characters is because I, I think it's imperative in order to understand the national review is to understand the men who, who start it. It is, at its core, an anti-communist publication. I mean, they're, and they're open about this. It's an anti-communist coalition that they're attempting to build. And they're going to use National Review as the medium to build that coalition. It's a mechanism for building a fusion that can, that can have some kind of, of impact politically. But first, there has to be some theoretical fusion. And that's what will happen at National Review. And then the second, which is also really key, is that there is an undercurrent of religious thought, but in particular, Catholic thought at National Review. There's this incredible influence. And in fact, if I were to pinpoint one influence in the conservative movement religiously, it would be Catholicism. It has been tremendously impactful over the last 50 years. Right. And down to this day, with, oh, yeah. with most of the conservatives on the Supreme Court right now being Catholic. Right, right. Uh, and But one liberal Catholic. Right. These Catholics... They're intellectually powerful. Right. Uh, which is, uh, thinking back to the 1950s, is, is, is like that in itself is astounding. Right? Yes. That, yeah, that you'd have Catholics on, the, that you'd have any Catholics on the Supreme Court. You're right. Yes. It's been just uh, unheard of uh, in the 19, uh, 1950s. Okay. But uh, so, so these, the glue that pulls these people together is sort of anti communism. Yeah. And this is the height of the Cold War, of course, yeah. uh, the conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States and, and or the Soviet Union and the so-called free world. Uh, uh, but you said even then, though, there is this tension between the traditional conservatives and the classical liberals. Uh, tell us some more about that. Right. Well, what's interesting is the man who I largely credit with, with finally pulling the fusion together, at least intellectually speaking, Frank Meyer is one of the earliest critics of a fusion type project. Uh, even, even in the early 1950s, he's saying things like, it's just not possible for classical liberals, these kind of uh, early libertarian types to, uh, to work with these traditionalist conservatives, these religious fanatics uh, were just too, too different. And then I think he sees the light politically and says, never mind, this is only going to work if I find some way to kind of overstate our similarities to form an anti-communist coalition. Right. And just to clarify here, we're talking about classical liberalism. Oh, this yes. is the liberalism of the 19th century, oh, yes. favoring free markets, uh, small government, with uh, political liberty being the main aim of politics. Oh, right, right, right. Protection is, of natural rights through limited government. Right, right. Not the modern liberals who were, in fact, dominant at the time. Oh, right. Oh, no, no. It's, it's, although it's, it's kind of the forerunner to modern liberalism, there are absolute key differences between the two. Modern liberalism is kind of a, a it's just that it's a modern evolution of the, the classical liberalism. I think there's, uh, Isaiah Berlin has a, a wonderful essay in which he describes the key differences between classical liberalism and modern liberalism, which might be helpful to some listeners. Uh, negative liberty, you can equate with classical liberalism. It is uh, freedom from the absence of coercion, meaning the government isn't forcing you to do X and so you are free. Uh, and of course, this is kind of oversimplifying. But positive liberty says actually to be free, there has to be some positive government intervention on your behalf in pursuit of equality. So, for example, if, if you want to use some kind of analogy, uh, 
you're a, a woman in the 1950s who wants to go to X college. Uh, and there is no rule at the college that says you cannot attend. Then you're free to attend. Fine. Uh, but a modern liberal would say, but you lack the economic means to attend. There will be discrimination against you if you were to attend. And so there has to be some, uh, some positive government intervention on your behalf so that you're actually effectively free to attend this college. So that can kind of explain to the difference between classical liberalism, which is very, very suspicious of government intervention. Uh, that's the nemesis is government intervention because they seek to protect uh, liberty at the very individual level and modern liberalism, which is very willing to use the arm of the state. Yeah, so classical liberalism, modern liberalism have in common the, the view that liberty is the goal. Uh, just the way that's achieved is, is different. For the classical liberals, liberty is achieved when government isn't getting in the way. For modern liberals, you need some support from society if, in fact, you're able to exercise your liberty. Yeah. Okay, with that clarification, back to classical liberals and traditional conservatives. So what's the divide there? How did classical liberals differ from the traditional conservatives that might make them dif difficult to sort of work together? Right. Well, there's, there's a couple of, of key differences. Uh, the first is that when I speak of, of, or when I think of traditional conservatism, it's a conservatism that never truly bought into the liberal project. It is, in some sense, an ancient ideology. It's, it's not just a kind of a disposition against change or progress that goes too quickly, although that's a component of it. Uh, I think that the deeper essence of traditionalist conservatism is that it is in some sense pre-modern. Uh, and you can see this in its view of human nature, uh, in its understanding of the individual and the role of the individual, uh, its understanding of virtue, for example, on human nature. If you are a practicing Catholic or a, a some kind of uh, practicing Christian in a, of a conservative disposition, think Russell Kirk, um, your view of human nature is that human nature cannot be fixed. It can't be evolved, especially not by government mechanisms. You know, if it is to be solved, it's only going to happen if you're a Catholic through, uh, through divine grace, right? Through the interposition of Jesus Christ who can change human nature from a fallen to a not fallen nature. Uh, but that's the only way human nature can be changed. The liberal project is different. At least the modern liberal project is different. It goes all the way to the other side and says, actually human nature can be changed. This starts actually with, with Rousseau and then later Marx. Uh, actually human nature can be changed and it can be changed through government intervention. You can actually progress uh, beyond just suppressing the worst and elevating the best in human nature. You can actually change it. Classical liberals are somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Human nature can change, but it can't change through human nature. It has to be some kind of, of natural uh, evolutionary process. Think John Stuart Mill, right? The geniuses need to be allowed to progress and push society along with them. So that's a, a key difference is human nature. Uh, because what you believe of human nature is ultimately what you believe is the capacity of government itself and the objective of government itself. So human nature is one. Uh, and then of course, the primacy of the individual for classical liberals, the individual is the entity. It exists before the state, before the family, before everything. Uh, it's the individual. And the individual, in some sense, is the center of morality as well, kind of decides it for him or herself. Uh, for the traditionalist conservatives, that is just not the case. The individual is not the center. Man is not happy alone. He exists within society. So those are just some, some quick hits of the differences. Right. So... Uh... On the on the idea of sort of development of human nature, I mean, essentially what you're saying there, even for the classical liberals, uh, though the, the, they might not uh, embrace the notion that uh, human nature is going to be changed completely, like perhaps a Marxist might, uh, they did have, like you mentioned, Mill has this notion that that people can improve themselves through education, society can help uh, promote that Um uh, through through having a good political order. And Mill was big on what citizen participation as well. That if if people participate in politics, they will they will improve themselves and become better kinds of people. But the traditional conservatives 
aren't going to agree with that, right? They're going to say even even somebody participating in politics, uh, there's probably not a way that that who they are is going to be altered in right. any significant way. Right. Well, you can elevate the best and suppress the worst, but I think they get they get very very suspicious of any attempt to change human nature, especially by government mechanisms, because often it results in violence against the human soul. Think what the reaction against communism, right? What you see is an attempt to change human nature itself, often through government force. And that it, that's the tragedy. That's the great violence against the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What you said is exactly right, Bill. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, that's the job of the host to Right, right. To to make me always right. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah I guess uh, one other th- uh, thought uh, on the on an individual source of morality. Uh, maybe we need to emphasize that a little bit. Uh, the the classical liberals basically say there's the, the, the there's no re- really uh, definitive outside source of morality uh, that each individual is kind of their own moral compass. Uh, makes their own determination of what is of value in life. And that notion is clearly anathema to the traditional conservatives, right? Oh, yes, yes. Well said. Yeah. I I think you can frame this with the idea of the pursuit of happiness. For a classical liberal, the pursuit of happiness is whatever that means to you. But for the traditionalist conservative, that is not the case. Happiness is found in virtue. So happy is, happiness is living the virtuous life as is defined for something uh, by something that's bigger than yourself. You don't get to decide what the virtuous life is, and the virtuous life is a happy life. Okay, and what difference might all this make for sort of then a political conservatism that's trying to influence, say, government and politics? Right. Oh, a massive what, difference. What What might be different about what position that? That, that that's being taken. Right. So at, if you're looking at it's just purest level, you can take two examples. Social policy. A classical liberal is going to uh, be in favor of, of uh, just, a, I mean, one example, uh, legalizing marijuana or abortion or anything you can think of here because it's up to the individual, right? The state has no place to impose moral standards. It's simply not, not the role of the state. A traditionalist conservative would say, actually, that is the role of the state. The role of the state is to help people live virtuously. Uh, and so it would be abdicating the actual purpose of government to allow these things to become legalized. Uh, the second idea is, is economics. Uh, of course, classical liberals are deeply tied to that classical liberal economics, right? Free markets, Adam Smith kind of stuff. But traditionalist conservatives in their, their purest form are not at all uh, Again, it's about virtue. Uh, I think they're deeply suspicious of free markets uh, and materialism and and these sort of things and are much more open, especially than we like to believe, towards kind of state intervention in the economy, especially if that means things like helping the poor and moral uh, moral, uh, education in the population. So they actually are are really kind of dramatically different on core ideas. You have then, back even in the 1950s, these people, intellectual, conservative intellectuals, from these different points of view. So how does Frank Meyer create a fusion? What's the, what's, there's anti-communism. That, I mean, both strands obviously aren't going to favor communism or socialism. Oh, right, yeah. But, but beyond that, how does he try to pull them together? Right. Well, well, first, what you said is that's the beginning, right, is is this is anti-communist. It's it's uh, Bill Buckley has this great line in the uh, mission statement of the National Review. And I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, we stand athwart history yelling stop. Right. Yeah. So it's it's uh, pushing back against communism abroad and progressivism at home. So standing athwart history and yelling stop. So this is actually a multi-year process creating uh what we would know as the fusion, but I do think it starts with Frank Meyer and then with National Review, uh, kind of being willing to accept the intellectual conceit that it's possible uh, to fuse these two things. And what that means is this, it means telling the story 
that traditionalist conservatism and classical liberalism are both products of the of the Western tradition, but just emphasize different facets. That classical liberals emphasize liberty and traditionalists emphasize virtue, but these are flip sides of the same coin. It's both within the tradition. They're just uh, kind of speaking past each other. They actually have the same ultimate goals. And that's not exactly true, but it's what you have to sell. And then you have National Review, which begins this process of kind of gatekeeping the fusion, who's allowed in, who's allowed out, and making sure a number of things are, are clear. Anti-communist, anti-communist, anti-communist. I mean, it's overwhelmingly foreign policy related stuff at the beginning. And then you get social policy, it's going to be bent towards the traditionalists, right? There's gonna be some uh, social conservatism that's, that's generally accepted. And this is easier at the time, I think, because even the classical liberals tend to be uh, more uh, religiously conservative, so they can buy into that. And then the traditionalists buy into the free market. That's the compromise. Mm-hmm. And of course, they even oppose communism for different reasons, but they don't talk about that either. <laughs> well, tell us more about that. What? Well, I think if if I'm a if I'm a like Brent Bozel, uh, I'm not even sure if I'm saying his name right, but if I'm Brent and I'm a, a, a Catholic convert and just absolutely uh, fanatical about my new religion, the thing that would sting me the most about communism is its rejection of God. It's the great Christian heresy. It dethrones God and places man on his, on his throne, right? As, as kind of the mover of history, the shaper of his own soul, etc. So that's, it would, be, it would be the godlessness of communism that rubs me wrong. If I'm a classical liberal, it's the clear violation of individual rights, particularly property rights, which are, if you're John Locke, the foundation of every other right is property rights. So I'm, I'm even disagreeing on, or I, I'm, I'm not even agreeing on why I dislike communism, if I'm these two groups, but I know we yeah. both dislike them. Now, and this this fusion uh, sort of held these different kinds of conservatives work together through the 60s, the 70s, into the sort of the, the, the triumph of, I would call it a triumph of conservatism in the 1980s with the Reagan administration. Uh, but you argue in, in your work that, that by the 1990s, uh, this tension is, is is beginning to to pull these groups apart, um, and and you do cite historical factors like uh, the the uh, the end of the Cold War, the elimination of the Soviet Union. That sort of anti-communist glue is no longer there the, the way it was. Uh, but but you say there's more to it uh, by the 1990s. That it's really making it more difficult to hold these strands together. Yeah, I th- yes. I think the key is that it was always uh, a fragile coalition. That's the key is that it was never a fully coherent ideology. And I don't, I don't think Frank Meyer ever actually said it, it was, but he didn't necessarily say it wasn't either. Right. I mean, we all act as if conservatism is one thing, but it's just, it's not, it's a fragile coalition and so it really shouldn't be a surprise when that one thing that unifies this coalition, communism abroad, falls. And yet, conservatives would say they haven't made any progress at reigning in progressivism at home. So the, the benefits of the coalition begin to, to, uh, to become less apparent. What good is this coalition if the one thing we were fighting against abroad is now gone and we're not actually making any progress at home. In fact, we can't even agree on which direction to go on when we do get into government. Uh, so I, I guess where this, where this comes from is it's time to take conservatism as a political theory seriously and the fractures within it seriously that they always existed. And it's just, uh, they were just exacerbated by the tensions of the nineties. It's no surprise that it fell apart. And in the in the contemporary era, I mean, what what are some examples of 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 the of this fracture of places where conservatives clearly are not in agreement with each other, uh, and that are having an impact on our politics today? 
Yeah, uh, I guess three areas I could think of right now. Uh, one is immigration, and this is in a, in a more, uh, this starts all the way back in the 90s. You begin to have this fracturing on, on immigration. If you're a classical liberal, you like immigration a lot. If you're a traditionalist conservative, you tend to be much more concerned about the composition of the nation. And yes, this has some racial elements to it. Uh, so you're beginning to disagree on who or what is an American. Example uh, two that's much more apparent today, when Trump uh, wins in uh, the, the primary in 2016, uh, people are shocked because they say he's he's not really a, a conservative economically, right? He's opposing free trade and and all of these things. And and if you're a classical liberal, you're just your alarm bells are going off, right? Ding 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 ding. Who who is this guy? He can't claim to be a conservative. But if you're a traditionalist, you're saying, yeah, it's about time we we uh, let go of free market orthodoxy and begin protecting the working class and kind of the forgotten man and rebuilding the nation and et cetera, et cetera. So they're beginning to split on free market. I, I would go so far as to say that the conservative movement has let go of free market orthodoxy. There's some holdouts who haven't gotten the message, but uh, in general, I think it's, it's uh, I mean, just think Marco Rubio gave a speech at a at the National Conservatism Conference, which was, of course, held in Orlando, Florida. Yeah, Marco uh, Rubio is the Republican uh, senator from Florida. Yes, yes, uh, and he gives a, a speech which he in which he he calls out free market orthodoxy, uh, basically saying it's time to move beyond it and create a working class uh, conservative economics. Marco Rubio is saying this. He was part of the Tea Party movement. Right. I mean, this is this is a dramatic change. And then the third is is something is uh, it's kind of simple as like same sex marriage or marijuana. Right. If you're a classical liberal, uh, you don't see a role for the for the state in marriage. Right. There's there's makes no sense why the government even has laws about who can marry or is even in charge of who gets to marry. And if you're a conservative, a traditionalist conservative, you're saying, no, it, it's the role of the state to impose and protect a certain moral standard in the nation. So you have fractures on, on uh, immigration and, and economics and moral stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And on the, in the Obergefell decision that legalized gay marriage, uh, the man who wrote the majority opinion there was a, a classical conservative, uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, was known as, as, as was a, is a libertarian. Yes, yeah, I think um, of a libertarian hero to my my old friends in grad school who were libertarians. <laughs> right, he's uh, and uh, you know uh, very different from say Clarence Thomas, who obviously was in the in the minority dissenting against against uh, against that that decision. And you bring up Clarence Thomas, and this is so helpful. Clarence Thomas has said before that he was never a liberal, and I find that very uh, it's illuminating because if we're going to put Clarence Thomas on kind of that traditionalist conservative side, which I think we probably should, what that's telling us is that traditionalist conservatism was never truly liberal. It never really brought into the liberal premise. Yes. in some kind of constitutional aspect of limited government. Sure. Right. Maybe though they, even that might be fading away, but, it was never truly committed to the liberal project. And obviously classical liberalism is the liberal project, the original liberal project. In your, in your work on uh, immigration uh, at the National Review, you wrote this article, uh, illiberal, uh, uh, let me get the title right here. <clears throat> uh, the rise of illiberal conservatism, immigration and, and nationhood. Uh, you, you trace on uh, the, the the evolution just on the pages of the National Review that that up through the 1990s, the National Review tended to be pro-immigration in almost all of its its articles. Um, why was that? What what made them? Was it just classical liberalism uh, that was informing that? Or yeah, well, I think a couple of things. Well, first, the reason why I chose National Review for this article is because it is the guardian of the fusion. So if something is happening at the National Review, you know it's really serious because it's not happening at some, you know, out there whack job journal, right? It's National Review. This is the Fusion Center. Uh, 
Right. So why is there a pro-immigration consensus or gatekeeping uh, to keep the fusion together? It's kind of policed, actually, right? The John Birch Society is kicked out of the conservative movement by by Bill Buckley. So it's it's uh, it's about protecting the fusion. And there's a couple of things that make immigration really, really nice for conservatives during this period. One is it makes the Soviet Union look bad. There's nothing better no better PR than people fleeing the Soviet Union to come to the United States, right? People are voting with their feet. You're anti-communist. That's great news. Uh, the second is uh, workers. It's a, there's an economic benefit to it, and that's great news. Um, three, some people during this time, mostly classical liberals, but I find this very interesting, actually begin to posit an idea of a right to enter, not just a right to leave, but you have a right to enter a country, right? There's some natural right to be free uh, and to enter a country. Uh, and then fourth, the majority of, of immigrants that they liked who were coming from, from uh, communist bloc countries were like Eastern Europeans. And so there is some element of, well, they're Europeans that are coming over. Although this doesn't explain why they also supported uh, Cubans fleeing the Castro regime and Haitians as well. So I think those are the couple elements that that created this pro-immigration consensus. And then, but by the 1990s, you say a more traditional conservative influence is growing around the uh, immigration, which yep. which culminates with Trump, right? I mean, that, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the point of this article was this didn't start with Trump. This started back in the 90s. Right, that we should have seen this coming is, is really what it, it was. Uh, a couple of things. One, uh, they're no longer convinced by the economic benefit of immigration. Two, Cold War is over, so there's no more moral victory to people coming to the United States. Uh, three, and this is probably the most significant, there, there's no assimilation regime anymore. There's no expectation towards assimilation. And there's this real concern that what it is to be an American is being destroyed. How can you even say there's an America if there's nothing, no one's forced to assimilate to anything, right? So there's this kind of deep-seated deep fear of, of the nation and the threat that these outsiders pose to the nation because they're not melting anymore in that old melting pot analogy, right? They're not becoming like us. So they're actually a cultural threat in their mind. So there's some empirical assumptions embedded there, right? Oh, yeah. And in fact, these people are not assimilating. And I think a lot of scholars would say, well, that's not exactly the case. Right. But there's more similarity between, say, uh, what happens to people from Somalia uh, to what happened to the Irish uh, than, uh, than, uh, th than, than these conservatives are recognizing. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, yeah. Young immigrants uh, from, uh, from Mexico, you know, after a little while, uh, become, you know, big fans of American culture. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I like to always point out American culture, popular culture in particular, is such a powerful force that it really overcomes even the traditional ties that people might have when they come into the, this country. But that's a whole nother discussion. Right, right. Right. So, uh, so, uh, and the, the 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 traditionalist conservatives also have a view of the nation that is to some degree at odds with what well, it's certainly at odds with sort of the liberal tradition uh, Louis Hart's the liberal tradition of America uh, says what makes Americans is adherence to a common creed uh, and ethnicity uh, religious background really doesn't matter. Yes. Traditional conservatives see it very differently. And how do they see it differently? Yes, yes. There's uh, Roger Smith has this very famous uh, article in which he traces two traditions, the ascriptive tradition and the liberal tradition in American political thought. And I really think this aligns with that ascriptive tradition. This, I, this idea being that, uh, that being an American isn't just... Uh, accepting and adopting the, the principles of the declaration and the constitution as your own, right? Uh, I think it was Lincoln who had this, this idea that if you accept the declaration of independence and your blood of the blood of the, uh, of the veterans of the revolutionary war, right? 
they're kind of adopted in. They don't, they don't accept this. There's something deeper to a nation. It's language, it's history, it's culture, it's generations, it's these mystic chords of memory. It's, it's something deeper. You don't just come here and you're suddenly an American. It's something deeper. And often that's tied to some kind of Anglo-Saxon tradition, right? Uh, and so that's, that's the idea of, of the nation. It's not an open concept of a nation. It's, it's a necessarily closed concept. And they would say that's a good thing. It's actually a marker of a nation that you prefer your own over someone else. So it's, it's an open versus a closed nation. Who or what is an American? And they would say, it's not just enough to say you're an American. There's something much deeper. And if you're coming here and you're not becoming part of that, maybe you're not even capable of becoming part of that. You're destroying what it is to be an American for everyone else. And you point out that, that, that there's probably a racial component here, clearly that, that uh, and, and actually uh, race in the history of the national view was always uh, problematic in a way, right? <laughs> yeah. even, even in the 1950s, for example, Buckley wrote articles in favor of segregation. Oh yeah. Uh, I believe the National Review took an editorial stance against both the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act. Oh yes. Uh, yeah, so, so uh, the, 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 the idea that there are conservatives who are, are, are perhaps not all that open to uh, accepting all races is, was not brand new uh, as the traditional conservatives come back in the 1990s. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, a really interesting point is that this idea of, of an American nation, the one that they kind of cling to, never existed because there have always been Black people here. It's just this, this thing where they try and ignore that, that, that. Oh, no, 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 no. There's just a, so that's a, oh, yes, there is a deeply problematic history at the National Review on race. Right. Actually, and it, it may be deeply embedded in the psyche of, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Re Leader, uh, just last week said something about, "Oh yes, well, we don't have to worry about voting restrictions because in the last election, African Americans voted at as a greater rate as Americans." Yeah, yes, and that that is it. Your good point. That is it. And that's just yes. that's a kind of Freudian, Freudian slip on his part, maybe. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and that that really that really gets to the heart of what they mean by the nation, right? It is tied. It's that Anglo-Saxon tradition. Yeah, I like I like that quote for that purpose. It's very helpful. And maybe the white race, right? Yeah, oh, yes, yes. Some broader understanding of, of European ancestry. Yeah. Right. right. So, so you've, you said a minute ago that you think that at this point, this, these illiber illiberal traditional conservatives are really predominant. You want to tell us a little more about that? Why do you think that's the case? What are the indicators? Yeah, I think at the very least they're ascendant. Um, well, I, th I think, I'm not sure how to take the Trump election because there are deeply illiberal elements to the Trump election. And it's not necessarily about Trump himself. You've got to put him aside and focus on the intellectuals who began kind of propping up his, his administration and propping up his candidacy. And these are what I would call illiberal conservatives. They're, they're building a new conservatism. There's this uh, wonderful illuminating exchange between David French and So Rob Amari. So Rob Amari is over at First Things and he uh, signs a uh, manifesto because everyone signs manifestos these days called Against the Dead Consensus. And then he writes a follow-up article. By the way, the dead consensus, that's code word for fusion. So against the fusion, right? Uh, and then he writes a follow-up, which is against David Frenchism, just calling this National Review writer out. Uh, and what he has against David French is that he is like the embodiment of the fusion, which is uh, too wedded to classical liberalism, too wedded to this kind of moderation and this blah, 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 blah. Uh, and David French responds and it goes back and forth. And it's significant enough that even the New York Times pays attention and you know something has happened when the New York Times will pay attention to anything that's happening in conservative circles. Uh, so even they will, will write uh, what is going on between Sorab Amari and David French. So this against the dead consensus, against the fusion, basically it's time for the fusion to die and for something new to be reconstructed on its, on it, atop its ashes, basically. And what that is, 
is, if not uh, illiberal, certainly not containing any liberal element. It, it's kind of excising that classical liberal component and uh, bringing in a new militancy to the traditionalist conservative element. Uh, and I'm gonna go back to that conference. There was a conference in Orlando, the National Conservatism Conference. And the point of this conference is to elucidate a new conservatism, right? And it's, and it's explicitly national conservatism. And when that comes to mind, think illiberal conservatism, right? This is not the fusion of your fathers and your father's fathers. That's not what this is. This is something new. Uh, bye-bye classical liberal economics, or at least kind of a classical liberal uh, uh, devotion to the free market. Um, and, that, and that would include uh, thinking about providing uh, maybe some income support for poor people. Oh, yes. Or yes. social programs to, to, to help poor people. So these people are, are advocates of a, of a minimum income minimum basic income even. Right? Yes, 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 yes. Combating free trade agreements, bringing business back to the United States, kind of the anti-globalist economic agenda, all of this kind of stuff. And then when it comes to moral issues, it's more militant. It's not interested in that liberal consensus anymore. They said liberal consensus is what got us here. We were lied to. Liberals told us back when we were the moral majority, oh, well, let you know. Let us do X, and you can do Y, and we can all just kind of happily live together. That was a terrible lie. They say, you know, what what has actually happened is as soon as they became the majority, now they're enforcing their new morality on us when they begged us not to do it to them because it violated some liberal principle. So they feel that's the word betrayed. They feel deeply betrayed. So bye bye liberal consensus on moral issues as well. Uh, it's not an necessarily an anti-statist conservatism either. It isn't a conservatism that necessarily hates the government. It just kind of hates what the government is currently being used for. Right. And so it's a conservative that might say, well, give us control of government and we'll start imposing a different set of moral values. Exactly. Right. The, the, right. Country. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and s some of these illiberal conservatives also are perhaps illiberal Democrats. That is, they, they don't, uh, they're very much aligned with uh, Orban in Hungary. I know uh, some of the people at the National Conservative Conference actually have traveled to, to Hungary and said nice things about Orban. Yes, yes. I'm so glad you bring this up. Uh, again, this isn't new. Uh, Wilmar Kendall, who's uh, one of the teachers of, of Bill Buckley, uh, also rejected liberalism in favor of democracy. He kind of saw a tension between the two and, and favored democracy instead. And you just see that coming back, right? That we can keep the democracy, but reject liberalism. Patrick Deneen over at the University of Notre Dame, another Catholic, uh, published a book called Against Liberalism. Uh, or no, 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 sorry. Why Liberalism Failed. Sorry, that's the title. Why Liberalism Failed. Uh, in which he, he basically says, it's time to excise the liberalism from liberal democracy. Right. And then, you know, later kind of public intellectuals take this a step further to kind of embrace Orban's uh, illiberal democracy. Yeah. 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 That's that's yes, a good way of putting it. Though, though, though that move makes an assumption about the democracy, doesn't it? It assumes that that a, d a democratic majority or maybe a populist majority is, in fact, going to embrace these conservative values. Oh, uh, yes. That could be a big problem yes. for these people, right? Although if I'm, if I'm you know, a, a conservative uh, um, analyst or not an analyst, a, uh, a uh, oh, campaign person, I'm actually pretty good about those odds right now. If conservatism can shift to kind of a working class economic, right, and kind of take back the heartland, uh, so if I'm a conservative strategist, I actually feel that maybe we've got a shot here. If we can continue to make significant gains among uh, Hispanic voters, begin to chip more uh, black voters away from the Democrats, particularly black voters who tend to be more conservative socially. Uh, if I can begin to chip away and become a, a working class, anti-globalist, anti-elitist party, if, if that's how I can reframe myself, then actually 
maybe I'm competitive again. But then there's another path you could take, and that is to say, uh, let's the authoritarian path. Oh, right, yeah. Which actually Viktor Orban has taken in Hungary. Uh, that is, uh, gain power and maintain it, even though uh, you have minority support by constraining the, the ability of others uh, to vote, say, or to make sure that the election and outcome is in, in your favor, regardless of how the vote was. Right. Although I don't necessarily, necessarily see those two passes as different, right? If you have to be able to win an election so that you can come back into power. And to do that, you're going to need to take back Rust Belt states, for example. So really play into that working class stuff, continue to challenge at the border. And then once you get power, hold on to it. So maybe that's the transition. Well, unless as a lot of Democrats are now worried about in 2024, you uh, you gain control of the election machinery oh, right. and bring your candidate to power, even though the candidate has, has fewer votes. Yeah. You know, obviously I hope that's not the path that's taken because, you know, for what it's worth, there's actually something compelling in the new kind of illiberal conservatism. And I think that's why I'm fascinated by it because in every kind of scary movement, there's something compelling in it, right? Otherwise it would never gain any kind of power. And mm -hmm. I think the single most compelling component of it is that it's anti-elitist. Uh, it's anti-globalist. It, it points to something accurately, I think, which is that political, intellectual and economic power is concentrated along this, this Boston to Washington DC corridor and along the elite corridor in uh, the coastal corridor in California. And everyone else is being shut out and we're being told to shut up about it and that it's inappropriate for us to, to want to claw back power or this or that. And minorities are kind of being used as a wedge against, uh, against kind of the heartland. That's what they're saying. And at the very least there's something powerful and kind of seductive about that idea right? That's what concerns me more is that there's something compelling here. And so they almost don't need to go to election fixing. And I hope they don't go that way because they've got a message. It's a scary message, but they've got a message. Although it's, it's not clear that a lot of Republicans have faith that they can win votes uh, because the party right now seems to be embarked upon this agenda of you know, voter suppression, uh, passing laws that would allow them and and utilizing the uh, non-majoritarian elements of the Constitution, mm, yeah. you know, like the advantage of the Electoral College or something like the filibuster, which isn't constitutional, right, but it's, yeah. you know, a tradition, and 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 saying we're going to rely on that to maintain power and 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 prevent these other you know bad people not to vote. Yeah. Well, your 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 hopeful take though, saying that. Because actually, I agree with you there. Uh, I think the Republicans are, are foolish to in going this down this uh, uh, anti-democratic small D route because I think they do have some potential for competing uh, on the basis of you know a, perhaps a refounded conservatism around uh, you know the, the 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 things you were talking about uh, and could attract a majority uh, and that would be you know as a small D Democrat myself, uh, that's the way democracy ought to work, right? right. Uh, that you've got some ideas, you know, go out and convince the people that your, you know, your message is what they ought to endorse, you know, and on the other side, the other side has to compete and convince them otherwise, you know, and you fight it on an election, whoever wins, wins, you know, and it's going to be a continual, uh, and in a democracy, there's not going to be a final victor. There's going to be, you know, uh, competition and uh, interaction and, and you know that's but but this this authoritarian you know is is really very a pessimistic uh, view and I I think it's uh, really uh, uh, terrible for a country and, and it worries me a lot right. as a small Democrat yeah uh, though uh, it, what do you had to say about that sort of uh, you know the the people versus the elites position. Uh, in a curious way, that dovetails with uh, the American left as well. Oh, it does. That, it's all a circle, that, isn't it? That again, you know, there, there are no greater critics of what someone has called the neoliberal consensus, this globalization, 
you know, the, the, the increasing inequality than people that are in the democratic socialists of America, for example. Although, although I think a key difference is that the people on the far left will accept certain things that these anti-globalists on the right will not gender ideology, critical race theory, these kind of like hot button issues uh, they're going to, that are going to turn off a moderate in the heartland. I think that's yeah, though, the, though there there's this, there's a lot of critical commentary from on the left around identity politics nowadays, uh, a concern that the left has been too preoccupied with identity politics rather than class politics. Oh, thank and they goodness. Get, yeah. And they want to get back to, uh, we shouldn't, we, we should talk about how white, white Americans and uh, non-white Americans have a common class interest that, and this is an old story in oh, the history yeah. Oh, yeah. of American, the American left, you know, that they're always ha- having to, you know, try to unite uh, racially. Uh, on behalf of, of class issues. So, you know, I think, uh, I think maybe the, I don't, I think oftentimes conservatives assume a consensus uh, on the left around some of these say identity issues that is not that strong, um, that, yeah. that there, there's, there's more a division there. Uh, the left-wing ideologues have their own tensions. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. And difficulties, so that 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 may mirror what you what you study. So yeah, no, I actually find that very hopeful. If there's there's one last thing I'll say though that that to kind of qualify what I've said before, this kind of new conservatism that I'm describing, it's it's in its infancy stage or maybe like you know early adolescence or something. It, it's not fully flowered yet. And in fact, I'm not convinced it's actually fully rippled into the halls of power yet. I, I think it's still kind of among the public intellectuals, that kind of intellectual chattering class, maybe some among kind of the, the masses. You can see politicians trying to react to it. Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio both attended that uh, National Conservatism Conference. Josh Hawley has, uh, has explicitly stated that he's an illiberal conservative, right? Um, so you can see them reacting to it, but I don't think that there's been a, a wholesale, uh, kind of sweep in of these new conservatives yet into Congress, especially not in the Senate. I still think there's some kind of older types of conservatives in the Senate still, which is interesting. So this is all kind of coming in the future and we're just having to kind of make out the contours of what it will look like based on what these intellectuals are saying. And that's assuming intellectuals have any power, right? Uh, and then one other thing that I'll say, just kind of as a eulogy to the fusion, which is there is a, a, a line that Frank Meyer often used, which was that uh, virtue not truly chosen is not truly virtuous and liberty without virtue is anarchy. In other words, liberty and virtue are actually flip sides of the same coin. They rely upon each other. You cannot be... Uh, free, both individually or as a society, without virtue, and you can never truly be virtuous without agency, without the ability to choose. And there's something kind of beautiful in that old fusion consensus, right? This this view of what it is to be a citizen in, in a democracy. Uh, there's also something beautiful in in this uh, willingness to coalition build, to compromise. Uh, so, I, I guess I started studying the fusion and, and its downfall kind of from a point of sadness, actually, uh, because there was something beautiful and compelling to it, but now it's dead. Uh, but in order to understand where we're going, we had to understand why it was built and why it died and take that seriously. Okay, well, I think that's a great place to end, uh, Savannah. Uh, thanks so much for uh, uh, sort of opening uh, up uh, this whole interesting uh, study of what's going on in the modern conservative movement. I know I certainly learned a lot from reading your articles and talking with you today. So I hope our listeners uh, uh, did too. And and uh, I think we have some new perspective for watching what's going on in, in politics today. So thanks so, so so much for being with us today. And thanks a lot to uh, Chris Judge uh, of the Department of Marketing and Communications, uh, who is assisting with editing 
uh, this episode. And thanks so much to our listeners. Uh, please tell uh, four friends or maybe five friends about uh, Beyond Your Newsfeed uh, and, uh, and, and uh, tell them they can get it wherever uh, they uh, get their podcasts.